It's good to be back. I took a little break. We have a friend who is a very wealthy attorney. That's just a fact. And they have properties. He has properties to spare. And he told us a long time ago, anytime you want to go to Colorado, you can just go take the house and stay. So every, about every two years, we make it. And it's this beautiful split-level home, and it's, it's nice. We go free. You know, I love that word free. We go free and um, do a little snowmobiling. I actually snowmobiled up to the Continental Divide. You say, well, where was Kathy? Well, she was watching. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. We had a good break. I know. And my thanks to Brendan for filling in for me. Uh, Where'd he go? Somewhere around. And uh, Anyway, good to be back, and good to be back into the Word of God with you, and we're going to continue now to connect the dots and look at what the Bible has to say. You know, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. I don't know how any believer makes it without staying regularly in the Word of God. So let's pray together, and then we're going to look tonight at 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and just kind of get an overview of those books and learn our Bible. How many of you know we need to know the Word of God? We need to understand the Word of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that tonight you will speak it to us, you will minister it to us, and build us up in the faith. We know faith comes by hearing your Word, and we pray your Word will speak tonight in the name of Jesus. Now, can you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart. I receive your word, which is able to save my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn to your neighbor and tell them this is going to be good tonight. And I know that my folks back there are ready in case the clicker fails. Everybody ready? We have to be ready. You never know. These technological things, there will be no clickers in heaven, no speakers in heaven, no microphones in heaven. Glory to God. All right, we're looking at the dynamic dozen, the the 12 books that follow uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books. We're looking at the 12. We just call them the dynamic dozen. Tonight, we're going to look at the monarchy. Now, by the way, if you want these notes, they're back there. When we're finished, you can grab those notes. And um, I would encourage you to, well, if if you get them every time, you're going to have a book by the time we're finished. And, you know, on Wednesday night, a lot of churches don't even have Wednesday nights anymore. Do you you realize that? There's a lot of churches that don't even have... I don't know how you can teach. Now, I'm not being critical, but I don't know how you teach the people the Word of God if all you have is a weekend. So this is where we get um, smart. This is where we learn in here. Really, some of what we teach is, is, is um, seminary level, okay? So you're kind of going through school and you just don't know it. I will never call it school because then you won't want to come. But we're learning the Word of God. And uh, I think every believer ought to have a clear answer for skeptics, critics, atheists, agnostics in this day. So we're learning. Now, last time we saw that Joshua, Judges, and Ruth fit together to create a very, very beautiful picture. Now, I want you to remember something, a very important point. When we connect Ruth 4, verse 13, you can look these up later, But when we connect Ruth 4, verse 13, 
with Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, Genesis 12 is where God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and, and began to make promises to him. Okay? When you connect what happens in Ruth 4, 13 with the promises God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, you see God fulfilling a promise in Ruth. Here's Ruth 4.13, quote, So Boaz, who was a Hebrew, took Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She was not a Hebrew. She was Gentile. And she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Now then we read God's promise in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. Let's look at what he said to Abram, or Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, y'all need to know that this promise we're experiencing right now. Now, let's go on. Verse 3, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. So I get very nervous about our current foreign policy towards Israel. Amen? You better bless Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, now, look what he says. Abram, you and your descendants, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those that curse you, and in you, read this with me, everybody, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The nations, the ethnos, the ethnicities, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Now, of course, that came to pass, ultimately, in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Okay? Through Judah, who was a descendant of Abraham. Now, Ruth, who is a Moabite and not a part of the people of Israel, has been brought here into the family of God. Now, what's happened? Now God's covenant has moved outside of the Hebrew people and has embraced the rest of the world via Ruth. So now God's promise of all the nations being blessed is beginning to come to pass. Abraham had been promised that through the people of Israel, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. Now someone outside of Israel has been brought into the family, and that is huge. It is huge for the implications of what's going to happen in the rest of the Old Testament. Because now the promise that God made is working its way out, and it's a wonderful thing. Because now it has come all the way down to you and to me. And everybody who's a Gentile in here, raise your hand and say, Amen. I be a Gentile. Okay? Now, Ruth 4, verses 16 and 17 talks about how Ruth is now in the line that would lead to the king, the king. Quote, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Ruth and Boaz's child, Naomi the mother-in-law, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth, a Gentile, is grafted in to the lineage that produced David and ultimately Christ. And that's a beautiful picture of the mercy and the grace of God. Because guess what? You and I as Gentiles have been grafted in to the Hebrew blessing. Okay? When we come to Matthew chapter 1... You find a long genealogy. You've got to stay with it. These genealogies, if you stay with it, something will pop out at you, I guarantee you. We find a genealogical listing through God's amazing mercy. He displays his grace 
by showing to Ruth or by showing us Ruth being put right in the middle of the line that leads to Jesus Christ. And guess who else is in there? Rahab, a former harlot. God's a God of mercy and God of grace. Through Ruth, who was not an Israelite by birth, would come the lineage of the one who would ultimately bring salvation, not just to Israel, but to also to all the nations, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, we come to the monarchy. One and two Samuel, one and two Kings, one and two Chronicles. The monarchy. So here we go. The time frame here is from Samuel's birth, Samuel the prophet, uh, around 1100 B.C. This is a long time ago, folks. Long time ago. To the end of David's kingship, which is around 970 B.C. So from birth of Samuel, the end of David's life, 1100 to about 970 B.C. Now within this time frame, you've got the story of Samuel, the story of David, and in the middle you've got Saul's story, which is really a tragedy. Solomon doesn't appear until, or, or in uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. He, he's going to come later. Now, the overall theme of 1 and 2 Samuel is kingship, a monarchy. 1 Samuel depicts the transition from a theocracy, which is what? The rule of God, to a monarchy, the rule of man. Now, folks, originally, God didn't want his people under a monarchy. He wanted them under a theocracy. He wanted them to be led by him. But we're going to see in a minute, they begged and pleaded and finally got what they wanted, but didn't want what they got. That ever happened to you? Okay. In the book of Judges, God was the king. He led his people and he raised up judges. Then at the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people say this. And tell me if this doesn't sound like something we've said before. We want a king of our own. We want a king. Why? What's their motive? Say it with me. Like all the other nations. We want to follow the herd. We want to be like all the other nations. We don't want to be different, unique. We want to blend in. We want to, we want to look like everybody else. And they raised up Saul. He was tall, handsome, charismatic. And at first he did brilliantly. At first he did great defeating the Ammonites. They raised up Saul and said, he's going to be our king. Now, there are three key characters in Samuel, and you know them all. Samuel, who was the last judge that God raised up, and he anoints the first two kings over Israel, Saul and David. Samuel was a major, major prophet and man of God. Now, the key verse of 1 Samuel is found in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Let's read it together because it's still true today. Are you ready? To obey is better. Well, I had three of you with me there. Let's try that again because this is true for you right now. To obey is better than sacrifice. What does God really want out of you and me? He wants us to obey him. We're going to see in a minute that when they didn't obey God, consequences were huge. That's the story of Israel. Now, let me look at a couple of PowerPoints here. I want you to note how the king of Israel was expected to be loyal to God's covenant. We could say loyal to God's word. He was expected to be, and, and the expectation on the king was higher than the average person. It's like in the New Testament, it says, let there not be many teachers of the Bible, for they will receive more stripes. 
when you're a teacher of the Word of God, you're under a stricter discipline from the Lord God. Trust me, it's true. Others may, but you cannot when you're a teacher. Now, when you were a king back then, God held you to a higher standard. And it was, are you going to obey my word or not? Now, that really becomes huge because Saul, though he started out brilliantly, ended really, really badly because he was disobedient to the covenant in 1 Samuel 15, and it brought his downfall. And it was David's obedience that leads to God's covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, summarizes this covenant beautifully. Now, as we read this, I want you to know that this is a great defining moment in the Bible. We call it the Davidic covenant. And it matters because, as we're about to see, it speaks of a coming king whose rule will be eternal. Okay, so let's look. God said to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be established. How long, everybody? Well, how could that be? Because David was mortal. What's God talking about? That's why Jesus was sometimes called the son of David. So this is talking about an eternal personality whose rule will never end. I'm so glad that this world is not going to be carried on by a socialist, a Marxist, a Democrat, a Republican, a Libertarian, no normal man. This world is ultimately going to fall into the hands of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and He's going to rule this world with a scepter of righteousness forever and forever and forever. And all crime, the lion will lay down with the lamb, There'll be no more, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, be no more war, no more bloodshed, no more crime, no more nothing, because Jesus is coming back. And you know what? I'm talking about that this weekend. That's a tease. Okay? Now, he says, your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. So God promised not a temporary, but an eternal throne coming from David's kingdom. Now, this, of course, spoke of Christ, who was called, as we already said, the son of David in Scripture. So the Davidic covenant was huge for the rest of the Old Testament. Now, pay attention to the transition in 1 and 2 Samuel. And again, we're only highlighting it. I mean, there's a lot of things we're not covering, but highlighting it, there is a transition that takes place. We've seen the transition from the rule of judges, which is a theocracy, to a more permanent monarchy, Saul the first king, David second, Solomon third. The monarchy was also a transition from the typical worldly expectation of a king to a king that is loyal to the Lord and anointed by God, even Jesus the Messiah. And we are racing as I stand here tonight, towards the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. Isn't that good news? The darker it gets, believe me, it's darkest before the day. Now, David's kingly success, you will notice, is described in one chapter, 2 Samuel 8, where it really just talks about what he has succeeded at. Though he was highly successful, David's kingly sin and its consequences 
are described in over 11 chapters. That's not fair, right? I mean, gosh, he had a great kingdom, but one chapter talks about everything he did right, and then there was like 11 chapters that talk about his mistakes. And why would the Holy Spirit do that? Why would the Holy Spirit point that out? Because though David was a king after God's heart, his not-so-perfect life demonstrated the need for another king who would come in purity and absolute loyalty to the Lord. What, what, what is happening in 1 and 2 Samuel is we're seeing, though David was an incredible man, charismatic, poetic, musical, a leader, gifted, you name it, yet he was very flawed. He was a terrible father, terrible father. He had a hugely dysfunctional home. Matter of fact, I can't find any family in the Bible that's not dysfunctional. That ought to make you say, amen, I feel better. (laughs) There's not one family. I mean, Abraham's family was a great big mess. Isaac, Jacob, they were all dysfunctional, lying, deceiving, power plays, political, you name it. So what we're seeing in, in 1 and 2 Samuel is God is letting us know that it will not be a normal, typical human being that will ultimately fulfill his will. It must be a perfect one, a savior, one without sin. And so 1 and 2 Samuel leads us up to this truth, just like the law, when God gave the law. He didn't give the law knowing or believing that we would fulfill it. He gave the law to whip us into Christ because nobody can fulfill the law. I double dog dare you. Try it tomorrow. Don't break one of the Ten Commandments tomorrow. And if you succeed, call me because you won't. We need a Savior. And so Jesus came and fulfilled them all. Now that's Let's move on here. While David was a mighty man of faith who killed Goliath and took Israel to its zenith, that is not the main theme of 1 and 2 Samuel. The picture painted is of a a man who was after God's own heart, but who also had some major weaknesses. And as a result, we see in 1 and 2 Samuel the need for a perfect king. Now, next we come to 1 and 2 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings contain over 400 years of Israelite history. Four centuries covered in 1 and 2 Kings. Now, as I'm doing this, I hope it might occur to you to maybe tomorrow morning get up and go through some of these. Read these yourself, okay? Really, I'm trying to whet your appetite for the 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, the Old Testament. The the, the more you understand it and see how the dots are connected, it'll make you want to get into it more. I've been going through the Old Testament for months now, and it is feeding my soul. Okay, so one and two kings. Here we've got over 400 years of Israelite history from about 970 to 560 B.C. And chronologically, we're still moving forward. Now, in one and two kings, you're going to find four key segments, each ending with a major catastrophe. And here they are. First, the division of the 12 tribes. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. But the division of the 12 tribes was a catastrophe. It was never God's will. It's like a church split on a national scale, okay? Ten of the 12 tribes defect. Ten of the 12 become the northern kingdom Israel. And then the remaining two tribes comprised of Judah and Benjamin remain to comprise the southern kingdom of Judah. So there was this huge 
grievous split. They they would now war with one another, compete with one another, slander one another, run one another down, deplete one another. As I told you before, Solomon, in his latter years, departed from God unbelievably, fell into abject idolatry, and when he died, a divided king with a divided heart left a divided kingdom. Church, there is trickle-down spirituality. Hear a lot about trickle-down economics? Let me tell you. It matters who you look to to follow spiritually because from the head down, the oil flows. Okay? So there's trickle-down spirituality in, in a church, in a community, in a nation, And here there was trickle-down spirituality. Solomon departed from God, grieved God, died a tragic figure, in my opinion, because he had fallen so badly into idolatry, departed from God, and then the kingdom that he left split. That beautiful, powerful kingdom that was taken to its zenith by David and Solomon divided. Now, that was a tragedy. That was a catastrophe. The second key segment is Jehu's slaughter of all but one crown prince or heir to the throne of David. Just letting you know. You don't need to know much about that right now. Don't have time. But here's the third segment. After that, there is the fall of Israel to Assyria. Now, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom both were taken into captivity because of their sin. Now, I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Here you have Israel, the ten tribes. They are taken into captivity by Assyria. See, when when God's people departed from him, he always opened the door and allowed an enemy to come and attack them. We could say the hedge of protection was always lifted when a nation or a people departed from God, his people, and went into sin. He lifted eventually the hedge of protection. And the Assyrians came in and took Israel. And you know what? They disappeared Israel, Israel, the ten tribes, never returned. Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into captivity by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken into a 70-year captivity, and then they were allowed to come back and rebuild. And you read about that, Ezra and Nehemiah, primarily Ezra and Nehemiah. But now, here's the deal. If God chastened his own people that way, Where does America stand? If God would allow an enemy to come in, burn their temple down, smash their wall down, carry them starving and bleeding and humiliated off into a foreign country where they languished for 70 years and the northern tribes never returned, Where is America? What makes us think we're so special? Can I tell you? In East Texas, uh, East Texas uh, terminology, we ain't. <sighs> I could park right there and spend the rest of the night, but I can't. So after, the, uh, after that, there's the fall of Samaria, Israel, to Assyria. 
And finally, we have the fall of Jerusalem, Judah, to Babylon. And this was a tough time. Now, two major themes are seen in these catastrophes. There's two major lessons from these catastrophes. First, the rejection of Israel as God's people comes as a result of Israel rejecting God. When a people reject God, God eventually rejects them in that he lifts his hand. And I can just go through all through history, secular and religious, and show you this principle. When an individual decides to walk away from God, God will call them and convict them and woo them and reach out to them. But if they continue, if they continue and refuse to repent, then God will lower the boom on them and say, okay, that's what you want. You go for it, buddy. And then they begin to reap the painful consequences of their own backsliding. Now listen to me, church. America is there. This weekend I'm going to talk about as it was in the days of Noah. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And then he said, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He gave us major signs to look for, and I'm going to deal with two of them in the next two weeks. Noah and Lot. I'm not up here to tickle ears or to, to give you a, a warm fuzzy. I'm here to tell you the truth. And America is at the precipice, and I believe is already experiencing the judgments of God. But we haven't seen anything yet if America doesn't turn. So we need evangelists, we need prophets, we need preachers to blow the trumpet. Yes, we do. Now, so the rejection of Israel as God's people came as a result of Israel rejecting God. They essentially said to God, we don't want to follow you. Sound familiar? We don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our public square. We don't want you at our graduations. We don't want you in our military. We don't want you. They disobeyed him chronically and terribly. And it's the same gradual deterioration you see in the book of Judges, which was constant, chronic backsliding. The decline is heightened as the kingdom is divided into Israel and Judah. When that split happened, it was symptomatic of what had already been going on on the inside of them a departure from God. And sin always diminishes. Righteousness always multiplies. The second theme is the rise of the prophets to proclaim God's word to these backsliding people of God. While the king was supposed to be the agent of God's covenant, the vast majority of the kings (laughs) had dropped the ball. As a result, prophets were raised up by God to speak. Prophets like Jonah, who ran, but he turned around. Isaiah, Elijah, and Elisha are a few examples of prophets that came along during the time of the kings and brought God's word to a backsliding nation. Now, the history begins in 1 Kings 1 through 11. So if you go there tomorrow, when you go there tomorrow, and you look at 1 Kings, chapters 1 through 11 gives you some history, and it's the history of the United Kingdom. It's before they split. Then the story of the divided kingdom is found in chapters 12 through 2 Kings 17. You see the kingdom dividing. And then you've got the captive kingdom, 
the unified kingdom, the divided kingdom, became the captive kingdom. And that's found in 2 Kings 18 through 25, where Israel and Judah are both tragically destroyed, taken captive, and exiled. Now, the combined books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings cover a total of 39 kings. Good grief. We have a president every four years, sometimes every eight. That's all I can take. (laughs) Can you imagine 39 kings from the united and divided monarchy? And you see that covenant loyalty, loyalty to the Word of God, is the measure of success or of the downfall of a king. As a matter of fact, when you read through the kings... The first thing the Holy Spirit shows about every king named is whether he was righteous or whether he was wicked. Not whether or not he was charismatic, attractive, a good orator, none of that. The first thing the Holy Spirit's concerned about is, was he righteous or was he wicked? That's what matters to God. Counsel somebody today and I said, listen, Everything begins with God and your relationship with Him. Much of your life could be spinning out of control. Where do you go when it looks like your life is spinning out of control and becoming chaotic? There's all kinds of problems. You begin with God and your relationship with Him. And that's where these, where Judah and Israel were. There were 19 northern kings, and not one of them followed the Lord. With every one of them, the Holy Spirit says, he was wicked, he was wicked, he was wicked. He didn't walk in the ways of righteousness. He was wicked. All of them. Israel, the ten tribes, didn't have one righteous king. Trickle down spirituality. As a result, men like Isaiah were raised up to speak for God when everybody in the whole country was forsaking him. So Isaiah preached. Now, out of the southern kings, eight out of 20 followed the Lord. And they were Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. With those eight, the Holy Spirit says they walked with God. They sought the Lord. They prepared their heart to seek God. But with all the other ones, all the other of the 39, nope. They dropped the ball. Now, next we come to 1 and 2 Chronicles. Interestingly, 1 and 2 Chronicles is the final book in the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible is the Jewish Bible. And the English arrangement of books... Now, this is just for your information. This isn't going to get you saved or lost, okay? But the English arrangement of books in the Bible you have in your hand is different from the Hebrew arrangement of books in the Bible. And the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew Bible. If you were looking at a Hebrew Bible, 1 and 2 Chronicles is the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last one. And it was possibly, I say probably, written by Ezra. Now, the Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles, focus exclusively on the positive facets of David and Solomon on the good things that were going on. You'll notice when you read 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings, it's almost like you're reading the same story twice, except there's a different emphasis. In the Chronicles, they're putting a good light, as good a light as possible, on the reign of David and the reign of Solomon. You read the Kings, 
and it's way more negative on them. It shows in the Chronicles the blessings of God on the obedient kings in Judah. It focuses on the kings that did it right, the eight kings that did it right. We don't find the negative facets of David. You don't read about him in Bathsheba or Solomon. None of their disobedience is discussed in the Chronicles. Now, it gives a more pristine, idealized representation of the kingdom of God. The central focus is on the temple and Israel's wholehearted worship. Now, with that being said, here's the question, why? Why would the author, and of course the author, to my mind, ultimately is the Holy Spirit, okay? Because all scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God, okay? But now, why would the author, who I, again, I believe was Ezra, why would the author of one and two Chronicles give that kind of perspective and speak of David and Solomon as the kings who were obedient? Why would he do that? Why that particular focus? Here's why. We've got to understand the perspective of the author, again, Ezra, who was trying to restore the kingdom. Ezra had been one of those who had been taken to Babylon in the captivity. And there, again, they languished for 70 long years. A lot of them watched their parents die in captivity. Then the great day came when Cyrus, the king, said to the Israelites, you can return to build, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild your homeland. I am releasing you if you want to go. And they went, and Ezra was among them. When they got there, what did they see? Imagine that you and I have been away from Fort Worth for 70 years. Think about that. Let's say, let's say in some land where we didn't know the language, we were homesick, we never really adapted to the culture, we were just, we were, and we were regretting and kicking ourselves for having done so many things wrong that we lost our home and lost our homeland and lost our city and lost everything. And then finally, after 70 long years, after watching some of our loved ones die in captivity, after raising children in captivity, the king of Babylon says, you can return. And we come back, and what do we see? We don't see one skyscraper. We don't see any lights. We see the roads all torn up. It looks like a ghost town. There's still some smoldering smoke and ashes coming up from a ruin. That's what happened to Jerusalem. That's what happened to their hometown. And they come back and they see this. Ezra says, I'm going to have to motivate some people to rebuild this. I'm going to have to get some folks to come and help me literally rebuild from the ashes. So Ezra, or whoever wrote the book, had been taken out of Israel, had come back, and along with a sizable remnant of people, was trying to restore what had been completely obliterated and destroyed. Now, if you're going to write a book, a history of God among the kings to encourage the people to rebuild the temple and to follow God, 
You're not going to tell them about everything that went wrong and depress them again. (laughs) It's motivation time. You're not going to look at these people and say, because of what you did and your descendants did and your parents did, we're looking at this great big mess. Uh Uh-uh. You're going to give them a picture of the glory of those who follow God and why the temple was so important. This is why we get this emphasis in 1 and 2 Chronicles, because 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings was written before the exile, but the Chronicles were written after the exile. It's like you and me being in exile for 70 years and coming back together. I would preach what I thought would motivate us to gather together and restore what existed before the exile. In this case, the temple in the city of Jerusalem. The story told in the Chronicles has three parts. There are genealogies, and if you stay with those, you find some neat ones. Don't get too bogged down and don't get demotivated by all the genealogy. You can read through it pretty quick. The second and third parts of 1 and 2 Chronicles are the united monarchy and the divided monarchy in Judah. You'll see the emphasis on God's goodness when the presence of God is renewed in Israel. There is an incredible celebration when the ark is brought back to Jerusalem, that was huge to them. And when it's brought into the temple, into the rebuilt temple, and when the temple is consecrated, they're rejoicing. And the Chronicles show that. This is, this is, this is restoration time. This is get it back time. This is take back what the devil stole time. Okay? That's the Chronicles. Now, the history books that we have up to this point are 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles. The Chronicles, even though they do put a more positive note on things, they end sadly. And as I read this, I want you folks to see, you know, and I'm not a gloom and doom preacher. You know that. Many of you have known me for years. I I am not a gloom and doom preacher. That's just not me. Um, But I have to be honest with you that... There are consequences when a nation departs from God. Especially a nation that has had great light. You know, we sing, God bless America, land. You know what? I can't sing that. Because there's no way God can bless the America that exists right now. Now, I can pray the rest of the song and sing the rest of the song, but I can't sing God Bless America. Now, here's what I could sing. God, revive America. God, revive America. Or I can sing God, wake up America. But I can't sing God Bless America when it's slaughtering over a million babies in the womb every year, when it's putting its seal of approval on perversion, when every single solitary day It seems like we take another step away from the Judeo-Christian ethic into literal national insanity. I can't. And and I'm going to tell you, the church may really need to be ready for some tougher times in America. But at the same time, God will protect and take care of and provide for his own just like he did Elijah. Amen. That's good. Just like he did Elijah when Israel came under judgment under Ahab 
Ahab, the worst of the kings, and we're talking about Israel, when it was divided, Ahab was over Israel, the ten tribes, and Ahab and Jezebel carried the nation into such sin, God finally said, that's it, I'm going to have to bring judgment on, on Israel. But what did he say to Elijah? You speak the word, Elijah, and then go to the brook Cherith, and I'm going to take care of you there. And man, he had, he had room service from a raven twice a day. And God took care of his own. But church, we're living in a dream world in a bubble if we think that a nation like America can do what it's doing and not pay. There is no way, or I don't understand my Bible. I'm not a prophet. I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. But I am a a student of the Bible. As I read the Bible, what we're about to see here, I become more convinced every day that there's going to be some major wake-up calls to this country that are going to shake, rattle, and roll this country. You remember I said that, and I speak from the authority of Scripture. Now look at how the Chronicles end. Second Chronicles 36, 17 to 21. Therefore he, God, brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of all his leaders, all of these he took to Babylon. He raided the house of God. Everything that God had given them that were symbols of his blessing, they lost because of sin. Then they burned the house of God. This was the tragedy. Think about Solomon's temple. This incredible, magnificent structure. But it wasn't so sacred to God that if his people went off into sin, he wouldn't let it go. Because he cares more about the people than he does the structure. They burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, the wall that Nehemiah would come back to rebuild later, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious possessions. You see, folks, what we have from God, we keep through obedience. You can't assume that because America, for instance, was such a blessed nation because back in the beginning, you know, the founders uh, uh, wrote the Constitution based on the Judeo-Christian ethic and a belief in God. You can't assume that because it started out so well, it can't end badly. It can. So can you and me. Anybody can shipwreck. Are you all there tonight? I'm just wanting you to know, I would be a liar if I didn't tell you. So, Pastor Jeff, I'm saved. I'm under grace. So I'm not really worried about consequences because God's grace takes care of all those consequences. You're a fool. You need to read the Word. I told you before, if I'm on an 18-story building and I say, goodbye, cruel world, I can't take it anymore, and I jump, 
And halfway down, I say, oh, Lord, this is a big mistake. Forgive me. You do not then suddenly begin to levitate. You're still going to hit. You'll be forgiven when you hit. But you'll hit. <laughs> I know this is real. I'm surprised everybody's not just jumping up and clapping and screaming. This is such an uplifting word. But, but we've got to get away from this greasy grace stuff and realize that, yes, we're saved by grace, but there's consequences if we sin. Whatever man sows, he'll also reap. Now, the grace of God can, can buffer consequences sometimes, but you're still going to have consequences. Now, they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. It's a tragedy. Burned all of the palaces with fire, destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. Among them, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezra, Nehemiah. Where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had been speaking to these people for decades, warning them, preaching to them, giving them the word. And you know what the king did one time? This gets me. I'm going to close pretty quick. But the king, he gets a scroll that Jeremiah has written listing all the judgments that are going to fall on Judah if they don't repent and telling them how to respond to Babylon in the will of God. And he took and he tore the scroll to pieces and threw it in a fire. That's like today, somebody taking a Bible and tearing it to pieces and throwing it in a fire and saying, I don't need that stupid book. That king was taken into captivity and ate his words. Now, I know this is somber tonight, but let me ask you something. Do you appreciate being told the truth? Seriously? Come on. I do. I do. I mean, I read the Word of God daily, and daily it, it speaks to me, convicts me, uh, redirects me, sometimes chastens me. So next time, it's going to get better. Hope out of the ashes, the rebuilding, the restoration, that's next time. Can we stand together? <clears throat> Amen. How many of you got something out of this tonight?